The easier you can make it inside your head, the easier it will make things outside your head. My name is Andrea and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, shit shows. Welcome to this this hot mess of a a party pirate ship here, okay? Uh, The only way that you can fuck up here is if you call me Andrea, okay? It's Andrea. Andrea. Even though I was telling them in the Patreon group today, Siri doesn't even know how to say my name. Hey, Siri. Uh-huh. What's my name? You're Andrea. That's what you told me anyway. No, it's Andrea. Hey, Siri. Uh-huh. Call me Andrea. You'll need to unlock your iPhone first. Oh, screw you. Screw you, Siri. Hey, Siri. Call me Queen of the Shit Show. From now on, I'll call you Queen of the Shit. No. Okay. No. Queen, no. No, Siri. Okay. I won't. Hey, Siri. Uh-huh? I want you to call me Queen of the Shit Show. From now on, I'll call you Queen of the Shit. <laughs> okay? No. Bye. No problem. Bye. I won't. Oh, bye, Siri. Whatever. <laughs> Maybe actually if I split it, what if I, um, I could like take it into two words. An like A N N space D R E A. Maybe uh, <laughs> I'll give that a go. So today we are diving deep with John Connolly. He is the creator, the founder of Rapid Resolution Therapy. And so I was uh, on New Year's Eve. I was at a party at my friend's, and this other gal that was there, my friend had mentioned to me in the past that this. Ashley, we'll call her Ashley. Well, not not we'll call her. That's that's her name. Actually, at the party, there was an Andrea, there was an Ashley, and then there was an Andrea Ashley there too. <laughs> cool story. I know, right? Want to want to hear it again? Um, so she, my friend, had told me that Ashley used to work for this hypnotist and that she was a trained hypnotist. Um, herself. And so I'd been wanting to ask her questions and talk to her. So she was at the party and uh, she told me that it was, you know, not it's not really hypnosis. It's more of a type of therapy, but it's called rapid resolution therapy. And she just said it totally transformed her, that it was like life-changing, magical. I think she initially went to go see him related to grief. Um and so she went and she found uh, rapid resolution therapy, had a session with John and walked out um, an hour and a half later, like thinking, what the fuck just happened to me? Like it was like an insane shift for her. So I told her that I would love to have him on the podcast. That sounds super interesting. So what the hell is rapid resolution therapy? Allow me to tell you. So RRT is a form of psychotherapy designed to help individuals overcome the ongoing effects associated with traumatic experiences. When something traumatic happens, we go over it again and again in our mind. 
the neural messages keep going down the same pathway with the same exact emotional response. This is why we experience the same feelings and emotions as if they were happening all over. Uh, There are a number of treatments available to help with PTSD, including cognitive process therapy, prolonged exposure, exposure therapy, and EMDR. While these therapies can be effective, they also force the person to relive their traumatic experiences. Rapid resolution therapy is different. RRT uses guided imagery, hypnosis, stories, and other types of communication to resolve troubling thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. So then um, after I did some more research, I reached out to Ashley and I said, hey, is he somebody that, um, that can be challenged because there's some you know, some things that I don't buy into or it's it's hard for me to buy into. Number one, that healing trauma, healing this stuff does not require deep introspection. He doesn't think that it requires no introspection, but, you know, is enough introspection that can be done in a few um, sessions. It's not a word. That sounds so weird to me right now. Introspection. You know, when you like say a word and it's like, it, it just seems like it's in a foreign language sometimes. You're like, that's a word? Introspection. That doesn't sound like a word to me. Um, I think it requires deep introspection. And I think that that is the beautiful thing about what we're we're doing here, right? It's through that deep introspection that we unearth our whole, our uh, best selves. And I also think that it's through deep introspection that we really live a, a purposeful and fulfilling life. Um, those are just my opinions. But this technique is helping, like, it seems like this is been life-changing for a ton of people. I couldn't find anything critical about it on the internet, like not one single thing, just, um, just how effective it is and how many different types of people are using it. So I'm game. I think I need to do this shit with my um with my my games on my phone right so i'm down to to try this i didn't get to ask him all of my questions related to rrt we actually ended up talking about his life a lot longer than i thought it was because it's fascinating uh, but I'm, i'll definitely have him back on to ask the rest of my my questiones too so yeah this is a goodie i had fun i had a lot of fun it was this was on friday night this was like a poppin' in the club uh, conversation for me. We uh, we hit it off right from the start. Great rapport. He's funny. This is a gem. But first, let's take care of business, okay? I would like to give a shout out to my newest Patreon members. These fine ass shit shows. <laughs> what if that was merch? Do you think anyone would ever wear? a small sweatshirt that said fine ass shit show <laughs> i kind of want to just make one for me <laughs> fine ass fast call me fast for short patreon is where i host three weekly zoom support groups with a bunch of amazing people i know how many of you listening right now have been thinking about joining and are in resistance because 
I have so many people that join that say they've been listening to the pod for a while and that that they've been wanting to join the Patreon for a while and they haven't. Let me read you this message. We have our WhatsApp chat group, which is poppin'. That's the poppin' place to be. Uh, And I want to share a message from one of our newer shit shows. She said, I just want to thank you all for providing such wonderful support. Only five meetings in. I am so new to this journey, and you guys are making me feel so much less isolated with it. I am actually excited to be working on myself for the very first time ever. Thank you, Andrea, for creating this and bringing awareness to what we are going through. Okay? Go join! This is a really, really, really special group. Actually, I'll tell you one more one more story. So last Thursday, we had a, a new dude join jesse what up and at the end of the meeting he said um i just have a question he goes how long have you guys all like known each other because it it seems like you guys are so so close and it's like the fact of the matter is we are but most of us have only known each other for less than a year you know some people just just a few months this is really special you will feel at home, okay? So thank you, thank you, thank you to these folks who know what's up. Donna, Julie, Jesse, Stephanie, Dawn. Hi, Dawn. Dawn's my friend from San Francisco. One day you're going to get to hear her story and it's fucking crazy. Uh, Victoria, Roxanne, Ricky, Jana, or Jana, I'm not sure, Gabriella, Carrie, Gretchen, Aspen, Sandra. Well, oh, today was Sandra's very, very, very first meeting. So you better come back, Sandra. Ellen and Rob. Thank you. Thank you, shit shows. I love you. The rest of y'all can now follow suit. Patreon.com slash adult child. You can also give me a little follow on the Insta, on the TikTok, on the tactic. <laughs> on the TikTok, tickety tack, uh, at adult child pod. And whatever you do, please give me a damn five star rating on Apple and Spotify. Uh, if you don't know how to do that, you can email me. I'll, I'll show you how to do that shit, okay? <laughs> oh, thanks so much, guys. Love you. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce the founder and the creator of Rapid Resolution Therapy, John Connolly. Welcome. Thank you so much. Um, thank you so yeah, much. I didn't Andrea. tell you it's Andrea, not Andrea. I'll, I'll, Andrea. I'll, we'll end this interview if you call me Andrea, just letting you know. I'll do my best. <laughs> it's a pet peeve. Um, I'll tell you this one story. So this was when I was in a, I was just telling them that I've been sober for 14 years. So when I was um, a senior in high school, um, I got sent to, I got invited to this birthday party, but I was only allowed to attend if I drank beer only now, initially they told me I couldn't drink at all, but I was able to like negotiate to beer only. <laughs> and so of course, um, I, so I drank a bottle of wine by myself before I went, I showed up at the party, like fully intending to like drink beer only. Um, but, uh, I don't have any control once alcohol is <laughs> ingested into my body. And so it wasn't long, maybe an hour before I started getting into the hard liquor. And then I was immediately kicked out of the party and these two people drove me home. And so as soon as I got home, I called a taxi and I had the taxi take me right 
back to the party. (laughs) And when they weren't super pumped to see me there, and I created quite a lot of noise and created quite a scene, the neighbors called the police and everyone got arrested for underage drinking. Oh my goodness. (laughs) You're a whole homewrecker. Yeah. So that's what I mean when the world's a much better place. I was a party girl. I was a good time gal. (laughs) I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. You said not just better, you said safer. Yeah. Safer. Much safer. So. Well, congratulations on kicking that to the curb. Yeah. Thank God. It was not, it was not going too well. So I've been doing, well, actually first let's start with this. These are some questions that I like to ask when people come on. So what song do you want played when you walk into a room? Um, I'm I'm woman hear me roar. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I was on a I was on a podcast with this fella who did this podcast called The Art of Masculinity. And I thought, what 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 are we doing here? <laughs> and, and and he asked me a similar question. He said, so and I, I was totally not ready for it. And he says, so what do you, what song makes you stand up and start singing with it? And um, I said something like uh, Leslie Gore singing, it's my party and I'll cry if I want to. But but what, what I thought later is, oh, I should have just said, I am woman, hear me roar. I thought it would be vastly inappropriate on an art of masculinity it would be perfect podcast yes and i didn't think <laughs> fast enough okay what is your favorite um carbohydrate oh gosh it's been a long time because i've been with simple carbs someplace where you were with have been with wine but <laughs> um um a big a uh, plate of spaghetti, a uh, pizza with um, cauliflower. Those things can can certainly whisper at me, but they they haven't been getting me. So that's like me, basically. Like if you were interviewing me, be like, "What's your favorite alcoholic beverage?" Yes. Okay, that's kind of fucked up. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, okay, what about uh, not next? You're going to tell me you're lactose intolerant. What's your favorite cheese? Ah, uh, I. I like to go to the deli and say, I want monster cheese. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> How's that go over? <laughs> that's, that's just the funnest one to order. Uh-huh. Monster? Yeah, monster cheese. <laughs> <laughs> you have my kind of humor. Okay. And then what about condiment? Con- con- condiment. Oh. oh, oh, okay. I I thought you were going to be the first one. The, the, no. the, my first <laughs> podcast where I've asked what my favorite condiment, condiment is. Yeah, no condiment. Yeah. <laughs> but that comes well, next. Well, maybe next time that you think of that. Time. That's the question yeah. for. Yeah, um, next time you have some guy who seems a little uptight with the mute with this song. Yeah. You can hit that next. Yeah. Favorite uh, condom. Um <laughs> yeah, uh, when they give me like a Christian rock as their favorite sort of the song they want to walk into, then I'll hit them with the favorite condom condom. There you go. Um condiment. Oh, I would, you know, maybe something really spicy, because I, I put um spicy stuff on everything. On, on a bunch of stuff, yeah. 
So what, like um, a hot sauce? Lately, like, like yeah, like hot sauces. But what's your I, brand? I can't think of one because I I got this gift of all the like twenty four bottles of different oh, wow. stuff. I don't even know what they are. I just throw it on and hope for the best. Okay, so I've been doing some mild stalking on you. Your 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 backstory is is interesting. But first, what I want to ask you is, how would you describe your childhood? Oh. It was uh, challenging. Mm-hmm. I um, I I think I was really shy. Um, I was reading my report card mm. um, from nursery school the other day in preparation for meeting with you, Andrea, uh, not Andrea. <laughs> uh, and um, it said, John is very shy, sweet boy. But he's beginning to talk to some of the other children and likes to play with the blocks or <laughs> or, or something like that. So that, that was the beginning. Mm-hmm. I, I remember living in a house with my, my mother, her sister, my grandmother, my grandfather, and my grandmother's mother, my great grandmother. So I was the only kid in this house filled with um, adults. That was the beginning. Mm-hmm. Then mom got married and um, I wasn't there any longer. And I was about four. And then I was adopted by the guy that she married. And um, that's how my name got to be what it is. And we moved into New York City, and and a lot of that was fun. Want to hear childhood trauma? Love um, Bring it on. So I'm like four, and they're moving into the apartment, and I'm there. And I had a bunch of stuffed animals, but one was my very favorite, a teddy bear. And they're moving the stuff up to into the apartment, and there's stuff like on the sidewalk. And somebody said, you stay here with the stuff to make sure nobody steals it. Mm-hmm. And there I was. And it occurred to me that I was four years old. And that if somebody was going to steal something, it might be me. So I ran in and left everything there. Mm-hmm. And they stole everything, which included my teddy bear. Mm-hmm. So there you go. I was able to go through most of my life without thinking about that until I met you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so thanks a lot, girl. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Bitch. <laughs> so why do you want to study history? Why do I want to why study? Why did you? That's what you got your degree oh, in, right? Yeah, I I don't know. I, I think I was interested in understanding what was going on. In, in the world to some degree, I, I didn't think I, I took a psychology class because I thought that would be interesting, but it was taught by some very rigid ex-military colonel psychologist or something. I didn't get along there. I think probably it had to do with who did I want to be around mm. in terms of uh, teachers. So you really did stalk me a bit. I mean, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I even know that psychology teacher's name. No, I'm kidding. That would be really weird. 
It's weird anyway, kiddo. So you get out of school and you can't get a job. Yeah. I called grandfather and said, what can I do? I don't know how to do anything. And he said, um, well, then how'd you get through school? And I said, well, I guess I took tests and wrote papers. And he said, you, you take tests? Okay. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, go over there and take tests. And he told me the address. And that brought me into um, a place where people take civil service tests. And that was how I got that particular job. Which was? That was um, as a, a child protective um, worker. That's scary. It was way scary. Yeah, I took a test and then I was a child protective service worker, which was, I mean, it was a great job to start with because well, it wasn't the first job I did. The first job I did was a substitute teacher. Oh, yeah. And you didn't, you weren't very good at that. I wasn't so good at that. And then I became a child protective service worker. And that, that was really interesting, you know, go knock on doors and tell people you're there to investigate how they're raising their children. And Were you, this is in the city? I was in uh, uh, Long Island. Uh-huh. What kind of training were you given? Well, the way to answer that in a funny way is to say, I was only trained in history, but at least my supervisor had a more specialized degree in art history and so I could follow her directions. <laughs> um, I soon recognized that the purpose of the organization was to cause there to be the illusion that children get protected. Mm -hmm. And because the um, we weren't we certainly weren't really equipped to do that. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, there wasn't enough time, there wasn't enough knowledge, there wasn't enough learning. It's a pretty complicated job just to ring somebody's doorbell and say, hi, we have an allegation that you've been messing with your little daughter. Thought we might have a talk. Mm -hmm. um, scariest thing I freaking ever did. Do you do you have any particular memories that stand out from that? Yeah, I, I certainly have memories that stand out from that. Want to hear one? I would love to. I mean, I just started, and and they said, "Oh, you got to go out on this one." But was there any sort of orientation or any sort of training or do this if this happens or? Kind of. I, I, it's been uh, it's been a minute or two since that <laughs> happened. But um, so there was some kind of orientation. Mm -hmm. I learned that we had sort of like peace officer status only in one occasion, which is if you're in a situation where children are in immediate danger, um, you can act on your own and take them against people's will. Mm. Um, without a court order, which they explained you could do and said, you know, and don't ever do that. Mm. Like, don't, don't do that. That was really an extreme move. So the first person I went out to meet with had, um, I mean, the guy had been cut up by his wife and, and he seemed disoriented and somebody made a referral 
and was this poor guy who was injured and wounded and had little kids he didn't know what he was doing with. I remember walking in and seeing a really little kid on top of the dresser, and the kid was moving toward the edge of the dresser. And I don't know why he put him on top of the dresser, but that's where he was. And then he forgot about that because I was knocking on the door. And I walked in and the kid was little kid um, on top of the dresser and crawling toward the edge. And so I said, hello, walked over and caught the kid in the air. And I thought, I'm officially a child protective guy. I just <laughs> protected this kid from falling on his head. Mm -hmm. And um, I walked out with both of the kids. Wow. Within, you know, an hour and a half of leaving the office the first time I was on the job. Wow. And brought them back to the office. And they were not amused to see me there. Because <laughs> that's basically what you're supposed to do as little as possible. And you're doing it on your first shot. And I did it on the first shot, walking in with two, two little children. So that that really raised all. Oh, I didn't just raise eyebrows; it raised voices. It got like, "What are you thinking, dude?" And um, I said, "Well, you know, I was worried about these kids for all these reasons. The fear for me in doing a job like that is the parents have already been identified as." you know, having a, a screw or two loose. And so there certainly is no assurance they're going to be protective uh, or, or or know how to be with their kids. And so at that point, if something bad happens to those kids, my take on it back then was, well, then that's my fault because I was assigned this thing mm -hmm. and I was I had this enormous sense of responsibility around it and fear that awful things would happen to these children on my watch. But that was day one. Well, I mean, when you look back on that, do you think that that was not the right move? No, I think it was absolutely the right move. Those kids were, were in significant danger. Their father was not skilled in how to do this child-rearing thing. They were little kids, and their mom was psychotic and had um, cut him up. And I, I, it just seemed like this don't look like a safe place for these little guys to be. So there we go. So that, that was the beginning of sort of being in any kind of mental health-oriented thing. I mean, it wasn't direct mental health stuff, but it was kind of sort of around that. How long did you have that job? Guessing maybe four or five years. So, And did you, and maybe you just didn't, wouldn't have the awareness of it at that point, but do you think that that was, uh, it triggered any of your childhood stuff? No. No? I mean, unless my childhood stuff caused me to be um, feeling guilty and responsible, but I don't really trace that back to anything. Yeah, actually. yeah, yeah. But no, I wasn't thinking about me, mm -hmm. and I didn't deal with stuff like that as a little kid. I mean, I dealt with a whole house full of grown-ups, 
but but nobody was um, beating me. Did you um, did you ever know your your birth dad? Oh yeah, yeah. I met him when I was like sixteen, and uh, then got to know him quite a bit. How did um, you connect? Well, I um, when I was raised, I wasn't told that my mother's husband wasn't my father. Mm. You were four when they got together. I think about yeah, four, uh -huh. four. I think, and but then as I'm growing up, nobody. They had other kids and stuff. I had the same name as everybody else, and nobody said I was any different. But I kind of knew that he didn't didn't seem likely that he was actually my father when I figured out I probably wouldn't have been around when they met or at their wedding, and I could remember <laughs> the wedding. So, um, yeah, that's when I think I got to meet my real dad when I was um, blood dad when I was 16, and things were sort of rambunctious at home, and mom asked if I'd like to meet my real father. And I said, well, yeah, maybe if he's unattached, single, has no other kids. So I had a whole list of criteria. Where do you think those came from? I, I didn't want to um, impose. And I didn't want to feel like some outsider all of a sudden, you know, in the middle of a family. Mm -hmm. I, I was feeling pretty fragile at the time and didn't think that would be a, a good place for me to land. So I set up all those criteria and, and my mom said, uh, let me check. And then she said, well, yeah, you got all that. He's single. He'd love to see you. And so I think that was my first airplane ride. Where did uh, we live? Iowa. Iowa. Yeah, I was on Long Island. Certainly first time I went to Iowa, first airplane ride. And it was um, it was an interesting trip. It was a you know, few days. How did you feel towards your mother when you realized that, you know, I don't know if it's flat out lying, but lying by omission, I guess? Oh, I didn't think of her as having lied. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I thought it wasn't something that she felt good about sharing and maybe it was protective. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, because I could think a lot of kids would feel betrayed or resentful. Well, I was resentful of um her husband. That conflict, I guess, is what got me the the plane ticket to go to Iowa. Yeah, yeah. And so then did you have a, a relationship with your dad for the rest of his life? Yeah, for the rest of his life, yes. Um, okay, so so you you have that job for four to five years, and then is that when you start? Do you, do you go to school? Do you get your degree, a graduate degree, at that point while you're working that job? Yeah, in psychotherapy. And and it was a degree in um, uh, it was a master's degree in social work. Okay. Well. When I was working that job, I started and then I got a different job where I was the um, like in charge of a, a short-term residence for runaway throwaway kids, like 12 through 17. Mm. And that's where I was by the time I got out of 
um, graduate school. And then talk about, share the story about the, um, the first sexual assault victim that you were connected with who had the, um, memories come to the surface during. Yeah, that was, that was really interesting. That was after I, I was sort of just beginning a private practice and I met a, a fellow doing the child protective service stuff who was a psychiatrist and he and I got to be uh, friends. And then when I had a position to do it, he said, do you want to uh, work with me? And and that was great. I mean, I had an, an office right away, nice office uh, with a psychiatrist as a partner, um, making lots of referrals to me. It was a, it was a fortuitous beginning arrangement yeah absolutely um there was a um flyer he got and i looked at it uh and it was a training in how to do hypnosis that was offered to health mental health professionals it was like a three-day training and i took that i thought that was real interesting was it a particular type of hypnosis the guy who was teaching it had been a stage hypnotist. Okay. And was not a mental health professional, but he shifted his career to be training mm-hmm. mental health professionals. But he's a kind of a old time hypnotist guy, sort of an interesting thing. And so I, that was a training I went to. And I, I don't remember whether I had any additional training at that time, but I, um, put myself out as a hypnotist. I didn't think I was really knew what I was doing it was three days of this class with a stage hypnotist. Balk like a chicken. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what they did. And and then, you know, I figured I'd, I'd like do what I could to help people stop smoking or lose weight, even though I felt like I was fat and I smoked. Um, but so that's how I how I began. And one of my pretty early people who came in was a lovely young gal who um, I said, so what's going on? And she said, well, I was raped. And I um, I can't remember um, anything about who raped me. And that was so disconcerting to her. It made her feel stupid because these detectives are saying, so tell me about the guy. I don't know anything about him. And I just said, well, uh, let me do what I can. And and it it broke nicely. Um, I said, you know, can we record it? And she said, absolutely. And I did this thing with her and she um, um, was able to remember um, very, I mean, really minute details about everything Uh step by step that took place and about the guy and about everything else. And so that was it. And she left and I had this little cassette that was, they used to I make know, work I on it. So um, then I got a call from a detective. He said, this is detective. <laughs> uh, I said, yes, sir. I mean, I was always scared of cops. Uh, and um, he, he, he said, 
you made a recording of some, <laughs> uh, you worked with a rape victim of mine? And I said, well, yes, sir, I guess, sir, detective sergeant, sir. Uh, and he says, and you made a recording. I said, well, yeah, I, I thought it would be okay that you might want to have it. He says, I do want to have it. Coming to get it. And he did. And I handed it to him. And he was wearing a trench coat that was wrinkled, kind of like Columbo. It was exciting. And um, he called me a couple of days later. He said, that, that's amazing. He said, um, this gal now tells me incredible detail. And he said, and she she's no longer so freaked out. Mm. She's calm. And I know a lot that's useful and he said there's this, this guy is raping other people will you help us and i said wow yes i mean and um so they started bringing um people to me and i got to meet all the detectives on the sex crime unit um they had a special unit there and it, it was amazing and and police officers were coming to my office fbi agents were coming to my office and uh, you know i'm i'm feeling like well, is, isn't this something <laughs> um and um it was very exciting to be participating in that and then other investigations i was able to work with some homicide investigations and some uh, sexual assault investigations to try to get more info, you know, and that's what they wanted. They were pleased that I also cared about the people and wanted them to be more at ease. Um, they were, they were caring people, these police officers I had the privilege of working with then. And so they'd bring these victims. They didn't bring any homicide victims because I didn't get anywhere with them but they brought um, assault victims. But I did work on a homicide case that was super exciting. Did you ever go and testify in trials? Yeah, in, in a homicide one, not in the sexual assault ones. I didn't, but I did on a homicide one. Who, who did you interview? Well, what happened is, so I'm starting to get pretty well known among, you know, police. And a detective that I had known came over one day and he says, uh, John, um, I, I'm trying to convince the department to maybe fly you to this state and interview this guy for me. Would you be willing to do it? And I said, oh, you know, of course. I mean, how exciting. And he did. And what had happened was uh, um, a lady was um, with her children in her living room and a bullet went through the living room window and hit her in the head and killed her. Um, this detective had the um, idea that it was her ex-husband who was living in a different state. I was in Long Island. And so he went to that other state and he, you know, like throw away things for advertising that the drop. Um, so he was reading all those things 
trying to find if anybody sold a weapon that was um, the kind of weapon that killed the woman, because the guy he thought did it, which was the ex-husband, lived there, and he said maybe he bought this kind of gun. So maybe he's looking what through like oh like newspaper advertisements to see if there was a yeah, gun. Throwaway newspapers, uh -huh. you know, penny savers uh -huh. and stuff like that. I mean, he was miserable because wow. this guy likes to be home with his family and he's living in some other state in a hotel room reading penny savers <laughs> yeah. all day long. Uh -huh. And he found these people and they sold that rifle and they couldn't remember who who they sold they it to. sold it to and that's why he wanted me to come wow. so i did and they brought this guy in and um i tried like doing all the tricks i knew how to do to get this guy to be able to remember something about who he sold the gun to completely failed it got zero I'm looking at this detective who went through a whole lot of hassle to get me get there, there. Mm -hmm. as his face is getting redder and his teeth are starting to, I mean, he was hating me. I mean, he was like hating me. And finally the thing ended and the guy says, all right, come on. And he starts driving me back to the airport because I'm done. And, and he's pissed out of his mind because he went through all of this stuff to get me there. And I said to him, hey, um, I didn't ask this guy, but is he married? And the detective said, yeah. And I said- um, Well, the detectives have the same voice for you. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's true. He said, <laughs> I said, well, I'd like to meet his wife. And he said, his wife didn't sell the gun. And I said, hey, I got an airplane <laughs> to here, and now I want to see his wife. And he said, no, he wanted to see his wife. And he made a U-turn, scared the hell out of me, went back there, and that did work. And that worked phenomenally because I meet this gal, and she says, well, you don't think I was involved in any of it? I don't like guns. I said, yes, ma'am. Can we just try something? Oh, you try anything you want. Uh, I did this thing with her. And next thing I know, like minutes later, she's describing exactly what the guy was wearing as he walked up the door to buy the gun, his tone of voice, the car he drove up then, which, by the way, was an MGB. I remember that. And and then I said to her, and this detective is sitting there with his mouth open. All of a sudden, he, now he loves me. Uh, 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 and I said, hey, just do me one more thing. If you could just look out there again and just, just like, you know, read off the license plate. And she says, it's, and his jaw drops. Andrea, this doesn't like ever happen. Why would she have, people can recall things that have some maybe emotional impact. Yeah, but a license plate. Gotten it. A license plate of somebody who came to the house to, well, how did, but it happened. And she read off this license plate and the detective was on the phone, you know, who belongs to this? And it was the guy he thought was the suspect. Wow.
Um, so they arrested that guy. And um, he was tried for homicide for popping his wife. See, I can talk like a cop. He popped his wife. <laughs> and um, and he was convicted. And you asked about testifying. So I testified there. Other experiences in court were earlier as a CPS worker because I went there. Mm -hmm. You know, and I was testifying around whether or not people could lose custody of their children or what have you. Um, but this one was a homicide case, a whole different thing. Wow. Huh. Yeah, I'm curious if today, if something like that would be admissible. There wasn't anything that they had to admit. Where, what would be admissible? They went and found the guy. It yeah, 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 yeah. I'm just, yeah. Um, and then, and then they could match, match it, the bullet to the gun. They, yeah, but they were interviewing you on your. Yeah, they did yeah. have me at, yeah. at the trial, and I'm still not sure why. And it was rather unpleasant, um, being at testifying for the prosecution in a homicide case, particularly the cross examination component, wow. where this. Very skilled defense attorney was able well, that's to what I was going to say. They probably not only the look, shit out of you, feel like an idiot. Yep. Um, for that whole thing, I mean, he really made me feel stupid. With he's good at it, you know. I don't know anything about how to be an expert witness in a homicide case. But then it was maybe three months later. The, he he called me up. The the the, the defense attorney. And he said, John, do you remember me? I was like, I said, yeah, yeah, asshole, I yeah, remember you. <laughs> I, I do remember you. And he said, well, I, 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 I'd like you to do some work for me. I've got a, and I said, do you want me to work for you? And he says, yeah. And I said, oh, and he said, are you surprised? And I said, well, actually, yeah. You made me feel like an imbecile. <laughs> yeah. And he said, Oh my goodness, John! You didn't take any of that personally, did you? And I said, "Well, I, I, I don't know." And he said, "Well, it certainly wasn't personal. I don't have anything against you. I'm just doing my job. I'm supposed to make. I'm trying to defend this guy so he doesn't go to prison." prison. You know? um, was the guy I, convicted? What was he? He convicted? was convicted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so was the guy who. The, the guy who had raped that original woman and then a whole bunch of other women. Yeah, it was a serial rapist, right? Yeah, he was convicted. And that was cool because when they did the um, press conference, when that guy, and he was big news because women were getting raped like a lot um, by the serial rapist. So that gets people's attention. Um, all on their way home from work um, after they got off the train um, and um, before they would get to their car on Long Island, people would drive to the railroad station, take the train mm -hmm. into Manhattan, work, come back like that. He'd rape women as they were on their way home, on their way to the car. And each of the, as, as I'm seeing these women the first gal, although she was traumatized, I, I didn't see any injuries on her. Mm -hmm. But 
these people were progressively more and more injured. It was um, um, really concerning. I mean, badly hurt by this guy. And um, so when they got him, and then they, 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 the detective who was head of the task force um, in the interview um, for the newspaper said, well, we had a lot of help from this young hypnotist guy. <laughs> young quack. <laughs> uh, I thought, yay on that one. Um, so that was a pretty fortuitous way to begin a practice. Wow, that's amazing. That's it was so exciting cool. stuff. Yeah. It, it served um, eight years in prison. Eight? A serial rapist? I think it was, I think it was eight. eight years. And then he got out. And then he got a girlfriend. And then he beat her to death. I just learned about that this year. Really? Yeah. How did you find out about it? I got curious one day and just started looking on the internet for stuff. Uh -huh. um, and so only recently I met with um, a police chief near where I live, and um, uh, the whole thing looks like it's going to start again because they um, want me to um, uh, jump in with them and be useful in, in rape and homicide investigation. Wow. So maybe there'll be another one. We need a documentary. Well, it was a, it was a very exciting thing. And, and, you know, I grew up kind of shy and sort of lonely and stuff like this. And... And scared of police because um, the, the the guy who married my mom would use police and all kinds of stuff, sort of as an intimidating thing. So I was scared of all that stuff, mm -hmm. and and um, it felt um, um, real interesting. Like I I felt this camaraderie. I mean, these detectives are. Like, um, you know, and they gave me little badges to put in my wallet so I could be a pretend cop or something, which which was fun. If I got pulled over, I could say, well, here's my license. Oh, so who do you know? Oh, you're him. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and that was fun. I also got to create a um, whole thing for police officers that were dealing with emotional difficulties, mm -hmm. uh, an employee assistance program, which I developed and ran for the Police Benevolent Association. So I was um, having all kinds of uh, officers come in when they were dealing with all kinds of personal issues, which they had plenty of. I, I did a big seminar for police I, I call it was stupid. I called it stress to success. And um, I remember it. I walked in to this big meeting room in like a, a big fancy hotel and all these tables and flowers on the tables and, and all these officers and spouses. Everybody's dressed up like jackets and ties and the whole thing, and there are all these newspapers there. 
and um, and I'm going to be called up to speak and do a whole thing for them to teach them to not deal with, you know, be so stressed out. And I, I remember that. I remember walking up and standing there at this dais, I guess it was, and looking out at all of these people. And I said, um, guys, I, 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 I kind of need your help today because I'm dealing personally with the two greatest fears I've ever had. Um, and one of them is public speaking. And the other is cops. <laughs> and that was the first thing I said to them. And that won them that over. Broke, yeah, that broke the ice. And um, and then I did some kind of, you know, real primitive hypnotic stuff. And everybody's eyes closed. And they all fell forward. And everybody's heads are on the desk like kids in, you know, at nap time in, in, a, in a preschool. And I looked out and saw there was like a hundred or more people in this fancy place who, and nobody's looking at me. Everybody's keeled over based on what I'm doing with them. And that, one day I took a course and they said, we want you to access a time when you felt proud, like wonderful. And that's what I came back to, looking out over the room, mm. all these people keeled over, and, and and me having nothing other than a microphone. Uh, you know, like, hey, I killed all these guys. With popped them all. You popped them all. Popped them all. <laughs> them all with my so that was, that was a high point. That's amazing. How cool. Now you're going to tell me you just made all that up, right? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm not that creative. Um, not, not to make all that up. Mm. Um, and, and so it's exciting to, um, recently be talking to a police chief and the two captains and the detective sergeants and all these people. And I'm telling these stories, which now are more familiar to me because I was talking the same stories very recently. And and telling them about like what I did previously, and they were all excited and saying, um, um, "We we really want to use you and do that and stuff like that." And I thought, "Wow, if I do a great job and catch a few bad guys, maybe they'll give me a tiny little badge." Yes, yeah, you start speeding again. Yes, yeah, start speeding again. <laughs> yeah, I could <laughs> start running with you, red light cop. <laughs> there you go. I I could. I could Start doing all that stuff again. That's so funny. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the deal. That was fun for me. Yeah, how cool! It's fun for me to hear. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, I'm so glad. It's, it's uh, more fun for me than telling you which song I would sing along with. Oh, screw you! Come on, that was great. <laughs> that was a great question. Okay, when did you officially coin the term rapid resolution therapy? I don't know, not not terribly long ago. Like last 10 years? Yeah, 10, 12, 15, something. Is this um, the methodology, is this something that you have been firm on for a while and then just recently gave it a name? 
I know it's not recently, but some. Well, yeah, it's not that recently. Yeah, but I, I, I began to do things differently than other people in the mental health industry. And why um, did you feel? Why did you feel the need to do that? Well, so I then I I get out of school, which means I can do psychotherapy, and um, people came in, and of course there there were people who had been traumatized. And earlier, I mean, I was dealing with that, but in a whole different kind of way. Mm -hmm. And now I thought, gosh, it's my job now to actually get people better. Um, how am I going to do that? And I, I I didn't know anything about how to do it. I, I called a buddy of mine who had been in school with me, and I said, I feel like I fell asleep in all the classes on how you're supposed to help people clear trauma. And he said, uh, dude, there weren't any classes on that. And I said, oh, geez, well, aren't you supposed to learn that? And he said, well, that's more postdoc. So I went studying um, that stuff. Um, how do you deal with trauma? And, and what made sense to me then is, um, if somebody's in a traumatic situation, they're not trying to express their feelings, they're trying to not be dead. Like if somebody's being raped, they're not trying to express themselves, they're trying to not be dead. And I heard that therefore the feelings didn't really get expressed, and therefore they were stuck inside people as repressed feelings. And that um, I was supposed to help people release them, and I learned how to cause people to re-experience um, terrible experiences that they had earlier and, and, and feel it and express it and cry and sob and pound and, 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 and vomit. Well, well, that would be really good. And um, I did a bunch of that, and I hated it because I was making people miserable. But I thought, I got to do it. I mean, I'm the one that didn't protect them when they were little. Or, or whatever. I mean, I really felt that stuff like, uh, you know, I don't like this, but I better do it. And, and I didn't think it was working. And that's why I stopped doing that. And then I started looking for just other ways of thinking about things and doing things. And I picked up a little here and there and there and there. But then um, I kind of, it, it gelled and, and, and then a bunch of stuff got added. I was somehow thought of things that new ways of thinking about things and it just kept building and it's still building. So I, I think I do better work, um, uh, today than I did last year. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I, I, I got the idea. Or, you know, way back to start teaching um, other professionals how to do stuff. And that, that was scary as hell, but fun. And um, I remember the first group of mental health professionals, I put out a flyer and, and I'm, and, and people came. And I have like 60 people in a room that are supposed to be with me for, uh, I think, 50 hours. And I thought, I can pretty much tell you most everything I know over lunch. So I don't, I don't know how I'm going to handle this 50 hours. But 
struggled through it and kind of liked the whole idea of getting to do that and kept rolling on that. That's what I've been doing since. I see people individually and I do a lot of training for people who are interested in being of value to other people. Um, mm -hmm. That's really exciting to me. And I've been able to put together ways of doing stuff that people who are training with me, most of them really like it and they stop doing what they were doing. I mean, they really just stop doing things the way they were doing them. And they call themselves um, rapid resolution therapy facilitators. And more and more people are hearing about it. Even with your help, more and more people are still hearing about it. And then they call people who have trained to a high level with me, or they look to train themselves. And um, basically, the, the target is to end suffering. And um, I'm not going to get that done. But um, I'm going to get more of it done than if I don't do anything. I've, it, sometimes it's it, it feels to me like I'm trying to empty the ocean with a teaspoon. Because whatever I can touch is infinitesimal compared to what's out there. I mean, you were talking to me when, when we began about the horror of homelessness and addiction, mm -hmm. people who don't have their stuff together with various physical and mental illnesses living on streets. And so, you know, what am I going to do? Well, this bit, I can do this. I, I would have liked to have figured it out, you know, about 50 years ago. And better late than I, never, baby. Better late than never. That's what I'm figuring. I'm having, I mean, I'm having a ball doing what I'm doing. Mm. I get to meet you, hang out, um, tell you my favorite song. Fuck yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and then get to tell you some war stories, you know, like, and then I got to do this with the police. Yeah, then I got to hear your voices. Yeah, so I'm having, I'm having a, a pretty good life. Um, I, I feel like in meeting some just extraordinary and interesting people and talking about fun stuff and then doing things with really bright people that seem to be revolutionizing the way they work with people. And now people are training with me from around the world. We have psychologists and psychiatrists and, and of course, a ton of counselors and social workers. And now more and more people who are coaches, which is another whole thing that must have happened when I blinked one day, because all of a sudden there's, there's this whole other huge thing going on. They're coaches, they're hypnotists, they're a bunch of people that think of themselves as spiritual, and others that think of themselves as metaphysical, and others that think about this and that, kinds of stuff. Uh, I have a few questions. I don't want to, I know your time is precious, but... Um, I'll try. Okay. So, one thing. I heard you discussing on a podcast about... Um, just the overuse of diagnosis, diagnoses, and labels. So you talk about how people are going to therapists and they're not getting better. And that's why you wanted to, you know, that's part of why you developed this new method. 
So for my listenership, are you familiar? Have you heard the term adult child of an alcoholic or adult child of a dysfunctional well, family? I, I mean, I guess I am one. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, uh, parents and siblings. Yeah. And yeah. Everybody I know. <laughs> exactly. It's the whole world. <laughs> exactly. But so what our experience is, the ex- my experience and the experience of many of my listeners is that we sat in therapy for years with our therapists not being able to identify and pinpoint that the cause of our present day pain was our unresolved past. And that was my experience. And so I was in therapy for years and years and years until finally, like by the grace of God, I learned that I was an adult child of an alcoholic and that I was suffering from complex PTSD. And so having that label and that identity that was what it was through that awareness that change became a possibility for me because I finally knew what the issue was. And so I'm curious what your perspective is on that. I think that, um, well, can, can you narrow it a bit for me? I mean, you told me your story and I'm delighted. Yeah. Okay. So I guess this is what I'm what do, saying. What do you want to know? Um, like the the having the recognition that I'm suffering like from complex PTSD, like I feel like it was through having that realization and learning that that was what I was suffering from. Through that, I was then able to heal because I had identified the the, the issue. But what I'm asking you is because you know you were talking about labels, and obviously, complex PTSD isn't the same thing as like giving a borderline like diagnosis. But what I'm saying is like. Do you feel like, like, cause I don't know if I could have healed unless I learned that I had complex PTSD. I think that the, do you know what um, I'm saying? Like, do I you believe think that- I do. Okay. I believe you're saying that it felt I needed that, that label. life was sort of dysfunctional. And then you recognized some things that were causing it that hadn't been addressed and that was on the way to getting better. Yeah. Nail it? Yeah. Well, yeah. Essentially, like, you know, the way it was showing up for me was in relationships, right? So, like, what I didn't know was that every time I got into a relationship, I was essentially living in a trauma response. It, it was horrible. And I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And I went to therapy for like years and years and years. And I would take breaks from dating and I would feel I'm surprised really- that they didn't like comb through every inch of your past. So you figured we it did. out. I mean, it was, there was always the acknowledgement or the understanding that like, yeah, my childhood was fucked up, but I had no idea that what I was experiencing was complex PTSD. Like a lot of therapy. But you were, exp- that's a, those are words describing what you were experiencing. Yes. But you knew you were experiencing um difficulty in romantic relationships and you knew that you had a um uh, but i didn't uh, know that the two were connected ah yes and and so at some point you got that those were connected yes um um i would give most psychotherapists credit for that they probably most people who are doing what i think of as traditional talk therapy would have probably caused most people to connect it because they're good at combing through people's lives and trying uh, in order to say the reason you're troubled right now 
is because these things that happened earlier, that's why we got to talk about all those things that happened earlier. And I'm not Maybe sure that, that didn't happen to you. Well, well, it's not that I think it's it's literally though, it's it's not just that that happened. It's that it was trauma. And I think that there's a lot of therapists out there who don't consider little t trauma as trauma. So it's like, yeah, that's fine. But like, uh, you can't just talk it through, right? Like the trauma had to be. No, I don't think you can just uh, yeah. talk it through necessarily. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, I don't think a lot of therapists have the understanding that a lot of people are suffering from, you know, that they have complex PTSD from little t trauma. Um, That could be. I, I don't know. Um, but I think that a lot of people who are really well-meaning people and working with folks often for really long periods of time and often bringing them through experiences that are uh, significantly painful mm -hmm. and quite expensive mm -hmm. aren't really taught what they're supposed to do to get people better. Now that there are many heavily advertised therapy um, things going on that, you know, like Massage Envy uh, it does for massage therapists, there are all these online things. And, and when I listen to the ads, which I can't not listen to, because I like to listen to podcasts, and they do lots of sponsoring podcasts, and and what I hear in the advertisements is everybody needs somebody to talk to. Um, so you should get in touch with us because you'll have somebody to talk to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I don't think, I think somebody to talk to is better than not having somebody to talk to. I'm having a great time talking to you. You're asking me all kinds of things about my past. I'm relating them. You're kind and interested. This is nice. <laughs> but I don't think this is going to get most people who have are suffering with something better. And I think you're doing a, a, as good a job with me as those people are getting when they go to therapists. Because you're what you're doing that's maybe I think better is you're causing me to remember and talk about a lot of things that happened previously, but you're not particularly sympathetic or empathetic, which I think makes talking to you much more valuable than if you were. Because if you are empathetic, or if you're sympathetic, you know, I mean, if I'm sympathetic to you, what's the difference between, boy, it must suck to be you, Andrew. Mm -hmm. And if I'm empathetic, it sucks I'm to be both to of understand us. <laughs> you by trying to figure out how I would feel if things like happen to you happen to me. And I don't think it's respectful or useful to do that. So I think that a lot of therapy does that. And the other thing I think it does is it seems to be encouraging people to um, look within and and process things within in order to feel better. I think that when we're doing well, we're generally looking out. If you're skiing down a hill and you're bobbing and weaving and you haven't had a tree, ha haven't hit a tree, you're not thinking, I wonder what my mother did to cause me to be skiing down this hill. But when you're screwed up 
there's a whole lot of self-analysis, which I would say is symptomatic of dysfunction, symptomatic of emotional disturbance. And it feels to me like much of the mental health industry is involved in looking to cause people to look within. Now, I've also done a, a lot of consultation and work with people in the substance abuse industry, which is, I mean, you get into a treatment facility for addiction, alcoholism, whatever, you're going to be going to, you know, four groups a day, where what are you doing, trying to understand more deeply why you're screwed up by thinking deeply within yourself. Um, I think that's what people are doing who are troubled. I don't think it's the key to wellness. Interesting. So what I think is this, the normal way to understand what's going on emotionally, normal way is that it has to do with environment that either is or has been. For instance, why is that guy so angry? Oh, that other guy just shoving, he's shoving him. Oh, he's angry. Or why is she so nervous on the date with this guy who seems so sweet? Because she had been on a date with some guy who then assaulted her. That's why she's on. That's why she's nervous on this date. That's, I think, normal. I think that's the way most people understand things. I offer a different understanding that because it's brighter, truer. I don't have any idea what the truth is, mm -hmm. but simply because it's more useful, I think. And what I would suggest is the thing that's been causing all emotions and thoughts, which then result in behavior, is the way your mind outside of consciousness is processing information. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to think that, not because that's true and the other is false, but because when people come to see me, they bring their minds with them. And then I have access to their minds and can do things that I've learned to do to cause it to process differently so that they can have richer and happier lives. Maybe I can share another distinction between the way I teach mm -hmm. people to do it and the way it's done out there. I don't remember anybody from the mental health industry ever sharing with me or anybody else that the reason somebody didn't get better is because, because I wasn't skilled enough. I hear people in mental health industry and even in coaching and metaphysical and hypnosis and substance abuse industries say, well, she didn't get better because she wasn't motivated and he didn't get better because he was not ready to change and he didn't get better because he was resistant. And, and I don't ever hear they didn't get better because I didn't get them better because I don't know how to or didn't know how to help that guy. In my community in the RRT world, if you come to me and you say, I want to get better from this, for sure, I'll either get you better or tell you, I'm sorry, I didn't have the skill to assist you. Um, I believe if you come to me, it's my responsibility to get you better. 
And if you ask most people in mental health, they say, no, come to me, but it's your responsibility to get better. And if you do, hooray for you. And if you don't, well, I'm, I'm sorry, but don't blame me. I would say, if you come to me and you don't get better, I screwed it up. If you say, no, no, you didn't screw it up with him. He just wasn't motivated. I'd say, yeah, well, he's, he's, he hasn't been feeling motivated. I should have caused, I would like to be then causing motivation. If he's resistant. What does that mean? He doesn't agree with me. I'm glad he told me. Um, so one of the things I'm pretty opposed to, well, there are two things. One is blaming the people we weren't able to help, which I think is prolific in the mental health substance abuse. You call some substance abuse program and say, has anybody ever relapsed? I mean, you know a lot about 12-step stuff. Has anybody ever relapsed? Uh, yeah. Well, whose fault was that? How many agencies or centers or treatment facilities that you call will say, well, obviously it was our fault. Guy came into our program and then he relapsed, so we screwed it up. You won't hear that. Well, yeah, the people that relapsed didn't really work the program. They didn't follow the steps. They were resistant. They weren't ready to change. They weren't dealing with stuff effectively. Blame, 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 blame. And I'm blaming who I didn't effectively help. People don't come to me because they're motivated, clear, and ready to do stuff. They come because things are messed up. My job to get them better. And the other part of it, and I mentioned that that I'm, I'm, I'm pretty opposed to, is the idea that introspection and self-analysis is the solution and that it should be encouraged. So we don't encourage it. We think it's symptomatic of disturbance. Um, and we say, hey, it's our job to get, so it's my job to get her better, and it's my job to get her better fast. And it's my job to get her better without the process of getting better being painful. And so I think if you call somebody before you see them, the psychologist, social worker, counselor, and say, um, I'm thinking of seeing you, I wonder, will you get me better fast and without it hurting? And if you if I don't get better, blame yourself. And I don't think you're going to get too many people saying, you betcha. But if you start calling people who've trained with me and really gotten it and are RRT facilitators or specialists are really good at this, and you say, I'd like to come to you, I'd like to get better fast, I don't want it to hurt, and if I don't get better, I'd like you to tell me it was your fault. You're going to hear you're in the right place. That, I think, is different. Okay, so, okay, so two, two counterpoints are on. So number one, about the whole um, people being resistant or blaming when it comes to alcoholism and addiction. You know, I'm somebody and... You know, most of the people in my life are in recovery. Like, 
there was a certain amount of pain that had to be endured until I was ready. Like I had to hit bottom and it was not the treatment. It wasn't the treatment. But you didn't have to hit bottom in treatment. I don't think somebody, you know, if I want to, I was super addicted to, um, to cigarettes. Uh, You might say, well, you know, that's nothing. Well, it was sure as hell something. I mean, I'm smoking three packs a day and I'm running a stop smoking business. I think that was pretty fucked up. (laughs) I felt guilty. I felt paranoid and I spent more money on mouthwash than most people were spending on their drugs. (laughs) Um, and, and yeah, I was not going to stop smoking while I was thinking it was fine to smoke. You weren't going to stop drinking while you were thinking, well, yeah, of course I want to drink. I like drinking. It makes my life work. But, so, but that's not what most people are thinking. They don't, they, it's not, their life is not. Right. Well, when their life is, if somebody's thinking, I want to keep doing it because I like it and it works for me, then I don't say, well, then it's my fault that you continue drinking. I wouldn't say that. But if you come to me and you say, I want out of this compulsion. I want out of this frickin' merry-go-round of crap. Will you assist me? And I say, yeah, I'll take that on. Will you do this for me? Will you come here? Will you give me your time? Will you put your body in this thing? Will you? Yeah, 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 I'll do that. And then you don't get better. I'm going to think I didn't have the right process, the right program, and then I'm going to look to be improving it. And I can't get everybody who's who, who wants to not get drunk better because I don't have enough skill. But I can get some of them better because I do have enough skill. And I always have it on me because I want the power. So I take the responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess it's like, I think about like with 12 step programs, um, when people, when people start getting better and changing, it's because they're doing the work, like they're doing, like once you get to a point of willingness that you're willing to, you know, do whatever, that's when people, that's when I change started to change. That's well, when I see know, other people start. I, I get that. I, I'm not opposed to you thinking that or people thinking that if that's useful in getting them better. But I don't like people who are working within that system telling you that you went, you relapsed, but it wasn't because my treatment program was not effective. I went through, you went through my wonderful treatment program, but you failed. You failed. You failed. I don't get it. I don't agree with it. I mean, if I take my car in because its body is all screwed up and I pay the guy in full and leave the car there for a month and I come back and it looks like it looked when I brought it there. And he says, well, I'm sorry, your car wasn't ready to change. And I said, well, then give me my money back. And he says, oh, no, your car wasn't ready to change. It's your car's fault that the bumper's still screwed up. I mean, who would put up with that? 
while everybody puts up with it from mental health, substance abuse industries. I don't see there as being blame that needs to be placed anywhere. I mean, obviously, people need to get better either. about... Like, but it's my responsibility. I'm not blaming myself at all. I'm saying it was my job to get you better. If I didn't, I didn't have the skill. No blame. How could yeah. I have had the skill if I didn't okay. have the skill? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that makes more sense. And that makes me intend to gain the skill mm -hmm. rather than intend to tell you that you didn't get better because you didn't care. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, I mean, God, I mean, well, then what, okay, next point is pain. So for me, like the times that I've experienced, like the most transformational growth has been when I've been in a shitload of pain. And you talk about the process, you know, being painless to me, I guess my view is like, you know, I view all of the pain that I've experienced, like as a, as a gift, like as a, like the pain that I endured has got me to this point right now where you and I are. You know, the pain that you endured, I would think, caused you to be interested in getting out of it. Yeah, no shit. And the action of getting out of it got you better, not just being in pain. There are it tons was the of catalyst. in pain, and we can't. It there was pain, and then you became interested in getting better. There, we don't see somebody in pain. And, and and just say, gosh, he's really hurting. I can see that he's on the way to recovery. He's going to have a great life. Look at how miserable he is. No, it's, well, he was miserable, and then something happened, and now he's saying, enough of this shit. Question for you. So for the um, for the trainings that you do, do you require that people have, like, prerequisites? Like, will you teach the method to just, like, any old person, or do they have to come in, you know, have some prerequisite stuff? Um, for a long time, I only trained people who were licensed in a mental health field or at least interning on their way to it. Okay. Or or health field. So we train physicians. Mm -hmm. um, I began to see so much iatrogenic emotional illness iatrogenic iatrogenic illness is physician caused illness there's a huge amount of it i think there's a huge amount of psychotherapist caused mental dysfunction emotional dysfunction and i found that there were people wanting to train with me who really wanted to make a difference in people's lives were open to learning whole new ways of doing it and didn't have um, a license in social work or psychology. And I began opening the door. To anyone? Saying, if you want to learn how to... And so the, the target of the training is take my training in order to... When you're in my training. So I got these people there. My number one interest is how can I cause the people that are with me to have breakthroughs and have better lives themselves. Because that's going to be significant for them making a difference for other people. Second, how do I get it so that you're better at dealing with 
your daughter when she just got thrown off the cheerleading team or or this disappointment or your girlfriend who just had a terrible health issue so that's two thirdly maybe some folks are going to want to actually get so good at this that they're offering it to people and charging and they find their way to me too so all you need to do to train with me is have an interest in making a difference and a willingness to begin at least open to hearing things in a very different way mm -hmm. and a heartbeat well no no, not necessarily. Not depending on where they are economically, we let the dead in if they pay a lot. <laughs> Do you want to promote anything else? I have two books that people might be interested in. Yeah. Um, yeah. One is called Life Changing Conversations, and the other is called Grief is Not Sacred. I'll tell you briefly that I wrote that book because if you start looking at the books on grief, the common theme is it's okay to not be okay. Well, it's not okay with me. <laughs> so you that's why that? I write my own You should have said the detective voice for that. Well, it's not okay for me. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's not okay with me that you're not okay. Um, and this whole notion, you'll never be okay when these things have happened or you know, and we're dealing with people who, who would be told that. I mean, people whose kids suicided. And the, the, you know, oh, you'll never get over that kind of pain. Well, it's my job to get you over that kind of pain. And if I, you didn't, I didn't do my job well. Mm -hmm. So if I think grief itself is sacred, then I'm not supposed to mess with it. I'm supposed to like worship it or something. Um, which it seems to me, that most people in the healing industry around that are worshiping the pain. How about grief is love? Well, I, I, I've experienced being with people that are grieving, and I've experienced somebody loving me. It didn't feel really the same. I don't think grief is love. I don't think grief is sacred. And I think we can get people better and, um, and, I like to do that. That's why I wrote that grief thing. We're, I'm working on another book. What's it going to be on? It, it's it's going to be on. It's going to be the very first anti-grief comic book. Wow. Yeah. Are you? <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. <laughs> Are you going to draw it? I have an artist. I'm not an artist, uh, artistic at all. Are you in the uh, anti-grief league? Anti-grief comic book. Yeah, yeah, but it could be the the anti grief league. Yeah, <laughs> you need the merch. You we need some superhero merch. I, I think she might have some superheroes in the comic. You're the anti grief superhero. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, that would be a fun thing to be. Well, when can we expect that? TBD. Oh, I don't know. We're working. Twenty twenty three. Um, I I believe so. Yes, yes, I'm sure of that. I'm sure within months. Okay. And then that'll be out. Once it comes out, you can come back on and we'll just reenact all of it. We'll I would love to do that. We'll just reenact the scenes. <laughs> yes. What else I want people to know about every Monday night, 7 p.m. Eastern time, 
Okay. I do a free open group called Solutions. You're um, more than welcome to show up. A lot of people show up, their hands go up, and I say, what's up? And he tells what's me up? what's wrong. Um, and a lot of different things show up. And I have to do something about it and move on to the next person. Last meeting we had Monday night, I think I worked with 27 people. Um, but I did stay an extra hour and a half to get it done. So that was a three and a half. Every Monday? Monday night, 7 p.m. Go to my website, which is rapidresolutiontherapy.com and register. I'm going to be there. I need some help with my games on my phone. I have a I have a addiction to the games on my phone. It's a problem. Well, I mean, you might. I mean, I I I, 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 I literally do. I'm not like exaggerating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I it's mean, like a problem. It it is if it's getting in the way of mm -hmm. other kinds of things that might be more fun, like good food yeah. and good company. Yeah, or just interviews. moving my yeah, or moving my I'm life. Glad you're able to put it down and spend time with me. <laughs> no See, that's progress. You could have <laughs> dumped me an hour ago and been doing something. I could have been game. doing it the whole time. I mean, I could have been sitting here playing. Well, I, 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 I can see the. I, I wasn't, but you left. You cut my attention the whole time. <laughs> what an honor! <laughs> I, what I'm seeing is these therapists working online, who are also playing um, Nations of War or whatever the heck people are playing uh, with these avatars at the same time. I was talking to a psychiatrist and said, how do you manage to listen to all of this really sad stuff and still function? And of course she said, who listens? Exactly. <laughs> I got Pac-Man. <laughs> there you go. You're delightful, Andrea, not Andrea or whatever. Just Andrea, you Andrea. are delightful. I had great fun. This was a good time. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that can help you on your own journey. As always, I know you did. Um, I hope you were entertained. There's something wrong with you if you were not entertained. Thanks, John. Um, that was, it was so fun. It was really good. Uh, and I'll definitely have him back on to ask more questions. And I'm definitely going to show up to um, one of those Monday night things if people want to do it too. And uh, I'm also going to include in the show notes like a bunch more information about RRT and other podcasts that you can listen to where people talk about the experience that they've had. Um, so yeah, thanks, John. What else? I still don't have furniture. <laughs> I still don't have furniture. It's been, it's been eight weeks since they picked up my shit, and they, now they're saying that there's, it's like going to be like another week and a half. I've really been okay with it. Like it's not great, but it. I don't know. I haven't been like super preoccupied with it. I have enough. I have enough to get by, but it's going to be a lot better when I'm not living in a you know apartment that's 70 percent empty and then i need to set up my youtube 
room studio. I need to figure out, a, I'm going to start doing YouTube and I need to figure out what a, I need a setting um, or whatever. You know what the fuck I'm saying. I need a background. I need to figure out that, all that shit out. So that was probably really interesting <laughs> for you. I wish I had something uh, else to say. I don't. Uh, I'll see you next week for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's gonna be super awesome. I'm all super excited. Proud of you. It's gonna be a Guinness. I promise. Let it all go.